Who am I? Who am I? How we answer that question can impact our life in dramatic ways on multiple levels, can't it? I mean, the search for identity is a common quest of all human beings. It's a question that people everywhere are searching for an answer to. It's an underlying plot for films and shows and plays. It's a motivation for songs and poems. It's the question at the bottom of nearly all psychological study. It is at the center of much of the turmoil and disunity in our society right now even. People are arguing about who they are and what they believe are acceptable and appropriate identities for other people to have. Who we are is a question that others answer for us. You're a winner. You're a loser. You are valuable. You're worthless. You can stay on the planet. You need to leave the planet, and it's on and on. It's a question that we answer for ourselves in many different ways, both in positive and negative ways. Today, as we continue our study through the letter of 1 Peter, Peter addresses this question of who we are. In the historical context in which Peter originally wrote this letter, both himself and the people that he was writing to were suffering persecution for their Christian faith. Some of them were being arrested and put in prison. Some were being publicly humiliated and beaten. Some were killed. Some of them were being ostracized from the rest of the community. Some of them were denied common privileges of society. Some simply experienced the emotional pain of knowing that others were whispering and talking about them behind their back, questioning their sanity, laughing at them, belittling them. Persecution is a very dehumanizing thing on any level. When we remember this, it gives us a great appreciation for the impact that Peter's words must have had on the people that he was writing to and also on ourselves. The, the world around these Christians was telling them that they were fools to believe in Jesus Christ. They were forgotten by God, they were being told. They were believing in fairy tales. They were out of step with the obvious and prevailing cultural norms of the day. They were rejects. They were losers. They were useless human garbage. But Peter writes and he says that those messages could not be further from the truth. Peter's words are relevant for us too. Persecution is one very obvious way in which our person is assaulted. But our image of self, our person, our understanding of who we are is under attack almost constantly in one way or another. If not by others, by ourself. Our own self is one of the most vicious <laughs> critics we face, running us down and kicking us into the ditch. And the same truths that Peter shares with the believers in that day are true for us in our day. Peter's argument goes like this. Jesus was rejected by the world and considered a cast-off, a useless piece of human garbage. But God's estimation of Jesus was very different. To God, Jesus is the special 
chosen one who is the very foundation and prototype for a new kind of human. Rather than Jesus being a reject and a cast off, he's actually the cosmic hinge upon which all of creation swings. In the same way that Jesus has been rejected and considered as nothing by the world of unbelievers, his followers are too. And in the same way that God sees Jesus in a very different way than the world of unbelief, so God sees his followers in a very different way too. In God's eyes, Jesus' followers, Christians, believers, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession who have received his mercy and blessing. We were once excluded, shut out, without hope and without God in this world. But now in Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God and have been given a place at his table, a place of privilege and blessing. Jesus and his followers may be zeros in the eyes of the world of unbelief, but they are precious in the eyes of God. They may be worth nothing to the world of unbelief, but they are of infinite worth to God. Well, let's take a look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. The living stone. Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone, which is an interesting mixture of terms, considering that stones are not normally thought of as living things. I mean, there were the pet rocks way back in an ancient time when I was a kid. But you know, uh, a friend of mine had one of those pet rocks, it never moved. <laughs> Not once. And he'd put a little food there. The food was there the next day. The rock had never touched it. Rocks are not living normally. Jesus is superior to the dead, lifeless stones of all that was associated with the old covenant religious system with its temple and sacrifices and priesthood. And as it says in Colossians 2, 17, these are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. It's like comparing a statue made of marble to a real human being. The statue may be beautiful to look at, but it has nothing in comparison to a living, breathing, moving human Peter is going to elaborate on Jesus being this living stone in the next verses. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is called living water as well. In John 4, 10, in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well talking with Jesus, he offered to give her living water. Whoever drinks the water I give them, he said, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, he said. And then in John 7, 37, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the temple, he stood up before the people and he said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them, making reference to the Holy Spirit. 
In the New Testament, Jesus is also called living bread. Jesus said about himself in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Living. It's a beautiful word which describes Jesus and sets him apart from everything else in existence. He is life. He brings life. He produces life. His life overcame death. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. This is the basic contrast that Peter presents in this passage. The world of unbelief rejected Jesus as the solution to the human condition, but Jesus is indeed the solution to the human condition that God has provided for us, his own precious son. He expands on this as he moves into this next verse. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, you also, referring to believers, Jesus followers, Christians. He says, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. Something amazing is said here. You're being called by the same term that Jesus is being called by. He is the living stone, and we are living stones, too, sharing a common heritage and purpose with Jesus. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, it said that when Jesus, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. At the completion of the first temple by Solomon, Solomon expressed amazement that God would condescend to dwell among his people in this house, this temple, this building which Solomon had built. In 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon said, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you, Lord. How much less this temple that I've built. And now God dwells in his people and among his people. People sometimes refer to church buildings as God's house. But God does not live in physical buildings. He lives in people, in Jesus' followers. We're each individually temples of God, and we are also together a living temple of people stones in which God dwells. It says, you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, there's something really amazing said here. All Jesus' followers are part of a holy priesthood. We're both the stones that make up the temple, and we are the priests who serve at the temple. In Old Testament times, the only people who were allowed to serve as priests were the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. 
They were the only people allowed to offer sacrifices at the altar at the temple, which God would accept. They served on behalf of the rest of the people, being their representatives before God for them. Well, under the new covenant in Christ, all believers, all believers are priests. All of us. All believers can offer sacrifices which are acceptable to God. What does that mean? Well, some of what it means is this, is that you don't need anyone other than Jesus Christ to represent you before God. You yourself have access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. There are no haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. There are only haves. You can have as close and as intimate of a relationship with God as anyone else who has ever lived. And it means that your service and worship of God can be as pleasing and as acceptable to Him as anyone else's. Romans 12, 1, which we have talked about before, tells us to offer our very selves as living sacrifices to God. So think about this. We are the stones that make up the temple. We are the priests who serve at the temple and... We are the living sacrifices being offered to God in worship by those priests, ourselves. Verse 6, it says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter, he now presents Scripture to support what he's teaching. This is a quotation from Isaiah 28, 16. When a, when a building, when, when building a structure out of stone blocks, there was a special reference stone called a cornerstone that would be chosen and put in place first before any of the other stones would be placed. Everything else would be squared up to this special keystone. In modern day construction, we, we use a similar uh, idea. But before any concrete is poured or a board nailed, the survey crew goes out and establishes a benchmark from which all of the other measurements and staking will be based. And these special benchmarks, they're guarded and they're protected because if they get goofed up or damaged or moved in some way, you're in big trouble. The whole rest of the project will be affected. You have nothing to base your measurements on for locating things either in the horizontal or in the vertical without these benchmarks or without the cornerstone. I remember working on a design of a project years ago as an engineer where some bad benchmark information had been given to us. And our whole design had to be modified and adjusted when the benchmark problem was finally discovered and brought to our attention. Pipes that we had intended to be several feet underground, they would have literally been somewhere up in the air. If the problem of the benchmarks had not been discovered before construction time. Jesus is the precious highly valued cornerstone selected by God to serve as the reference point, the benchmark that 
everything else, everything else that matters is built and based on. It says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For those who put their trusting faith in Jesus Christ and build their life and future on him, there will be no ultimate disappointment or embarrassment. There will be rejoicing and glory instead. Christian, some may question your sanity because you follow Jesus Christ. Some may make fun of you. In more difficult times, you might be arrested and put in jail for following Jesus Christ. But remember that this same Jesus that you are following is the one upon whom the God of the universe has built everything that matters. And rather than being put to shame for your faith in him, you will be honored. That's what Peter is saying. Verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22. And this is the ultimate whoops. The special cornerstone that was supposed to be used to base the entire structure on was rejected and tossed over there onto the junk pile. The one who the unbelieving world has rejected as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the solution to humanity's problems, really is the solution, the cornerstone upon which all is dependent and which brings completion to all things. What happens if you try to build without the cornerstone? Well, your building is lopsided, it's unstable, it's out of square, it's in danger of collapsing. And is that not really an apt description of a life and a society that are missing Jesus Christ? And further, this Jesus is, says Peter, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is a quote from Isaiah 8.14. In other words, the one who is intended to be our Savior and a blessing becomes instead trouble for those who don't believe and it brings judgment ultimately for them. In the end, there will be no middle ground for how a person sees and interacts with Jesus Christ. He's either salvation for us or condemnation for us. That's a sobering thought. He writes, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Disobedience and unbelief are two sides of the same coin in the eyes of God. One is a manifestation of the other. The person who doesn't believe in Jesus as the Christ is disobeying God. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The person who lives a life of disobedience to God in his ways is demonstrating unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3 is a, a classic passage that recounts the history of Israel 
and in their, because of their unbelief and their disobedience, they were not allowed to enter the rest that God had intended for them. This brings up a related issue that's worth mentioning here. Those who choose not to believe in Jesus Christ and trust Him as their Savior are generally, generally, ultimately refusing because of a moral problem rather than an intellectual problem. They will say that it is an intellectual problem that prevents them from receiving Christ as Savior, but that is often a smokescreen that they're hiding behind. The real problem is not wanting to submit their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Certainly people can have legitimate questions, and they deserve thoughtful, respectful answers to those questions. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know if we're really struggling with an intellectual problem or question, or we're just dodging issues with questions. That's what I did for a long time in my life. I told others and myself that I had trouble accepting the Bible as truth, that there were troubling inconsistencies in the text. That I had a problem with the idea of God creating a universe. That Christians were all a bunch of hypocrites. That the church was responsible for all kinds of atrocities in history. That the church's moral positions are out of step with current culture, and so on. But when I was really honest with myself, I knew it came down to an issue of submission for me. I didn't want to submit my life to God. I did not want to change my behavior. See, I, I, I knew enough to know that if I was ever going to do this Jesus-following thing, that I would do it legitimately and I would really do it if I was going to do it. But the cost to follow him seemed really high. It was going to cost me my whole life. And that was a scary idea for me to consider. But I had to come to grips with that and, and face up to the fact that I didn't have anything really worth hanging on to in my old life anyways. I had made a mess of it. I lived foolishly and I had spent my life doing a whole lot of nothing. So I finally laid my life down at his feet and I remember saying that it's yours. If you can make something out of my life, please do it because I have wasted it under my control. And he's done a lot better job with me than I ever could. I mean, he's had a rough go of it. It's been a huge challenge. But if you think this is bad, you should, have, you should see what it would be without him involved. You remember Gollum in Lord of the Rings? And worse. Verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Peter, he, he turns his attention back to believers here, and in machine gun fashion, he describes who believers are. 
If you're a believer, this is a description of you. Who am I? This is who I am. This is who I am. The dwelling place of God is no longer the temple in Jerusalem. It is now you. Believers are the new temple of God. The priests that are able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God are no longer restricted to the descendants of Aaron. Believers are now the royal priesthood with access to the very throne of God. The physical descendants of Abraham are not the exclusive chosen people of God any longer. Believers are now chosen people of God. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel alone. Believers are now the holy nation of God. The holy nation is not the United States or any other country on this planet. It is the kingdom of God, which is the church, which is not bound by the borders of countries. The church of Jesus Christ is the holy nation that Peter is talking about. The people who are called God's special possession is no longer restricted to Israel, but it is believers. You are the special people belonging to God. And we have been given a truly worthy purpose to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. I didn't make any of that up. It's all right there. We just read it. This is some pretty amazing stuff. When we consider that we were once not a people and we had not received mercy from God, that we were excluded from citizenship without hope in the world. And now, through Christ, we have all of this. This is who you are, Christian, follower of Jesus. This is who you are. We'll just close uh, reading from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, we we ask that you would help us to wrap our minds around who we are in Christ. Because this, when 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 we, when we read this, 
It, it, it seems ridiculous. When we know who we are living with in us and around us, Lord, that, that you have made us these people through Jesus Christ. You have given us everything. And you have brought us from nothing to this unbelievably honored and glorious position in Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, that you would encourage your people who feel isolated and beaten down and belittled and dehumaned. Nice, Lord. That you would remind us of who we really are. Who we really are. In Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.